All right, well, the walkers are here. That means no one else is coming in. So. I've got uh, 9.51, and when I timed myself during this lesson, it took me uh, a little bit of time, so I'm going to try to get us out of here on time, um, if I can. Today's lesson, um, and for the sake of the online recording, this is a series of Sunday School lessons that we've been doing on the attributes of God. And it's really been a scratch-the-surface or devotional-type level, loosely based on a book by Mark Jones called God Is. We've been utilizing that book primarily um, to, to know what attribute we were going to talk about based on the title of the chapter. So today is uh, dealing with God's anger or His wrath. And Mark Jones actually, I think for the sake of consistency, titles this chapter, God is Anger. <laughs> But we actually need to qualify that a little bit, as does the author of the book. Um, so last week we talked about God's justice and really his righteousness. Today we're going to talk about his anger and his wrath, and, and those words will kind of be interchanged a little bit, just like last Sunday, uh, the words of righteousness and justice were interchanged a little bit. Further, we're going to see, and if you remember from last week, really dealing with God's anger and his wrath is really better understood as an expression of his justice, Right? Because if we think back to the definition we gave, which was God's per continuous and perpetual uh, outpouring or granting what is due, what, what we are owed. Um, and we know that sin is owed wrath and anger and punishment. Before we start, um, I'll open us in prayer. But I would like some help reading a couple of scriptures. Um, and I'll just go ahead and give those references so you can be flipping to them and then I'll pray and and we'll read them. Would someone uh, put a finger on Exodus 32.10? And then someone put a finger on Romans 1.18. And we'll, after the prayer, we'll just, and I'll, I'm going to read uh, from Jeremiah, but I just want us to see that, that speech regarding God's anger and his wrath is actually very common in Scripture. Um, a lot of people may not like to talk about it. A lot of people may not like to think about it. But there's nothing wrong with thinking about it, with talking about it, because it's in perfect unity and harmony with the rest of God's attributes. So let's begin with prayer, and we'll venture on. Gracious Father, we are thankful for this day that you've allowed the ones that are here to get here safely, and likely, Lord, with a lot of ease, all things considering. We come, O oh Lord, as Christians uh, who have our faith in Christ, not in our own works, not in our accomplishments this week, Lord, apart from you. But we come here because of what you've done in our hearts, the work of reconciliation uh, that was accomplished by your Son. Help us, O oh Lord, now as we read through some of your word to try to understand what you mean when you express your anger and your wrath towards your people and towards the wicked. And also, Lord, help us to be impacted by it. Help us not to ignore or neglect thinking about your wrath and your anger. And help us to see the harmony, O oh Lord, that discussing this has with the rest of your attributes. Cause the worries and concerns that, that we all bring with family, with work, with just the day-to-day -day activities of life and the things it throws us to, to fade away, Lord, as we gather for worship. And draw our minds anew to the gospel. Draw our minds anew to your majesty and your holiness and your righteousness. 
And help us, O Lord, by your Spirit to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. But someone who had who put their finger on Exodus 32.10 give us a reading. This is, uh, just a FYI, this is a mist where the people of God actually made the golden calf um, while Moses was away with the Lord on the mountaintop. And this is the Lord's response to Moses. That'd be great. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Similarly, in Jeremiah, I'll read from Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 14. Uh, This is the prophet, and the Lord has asked him to speak this specifically to the house of the king of Judah. He says this, Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jeremiah 21, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Let my fury go forth like fire, and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwelling? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. If someone will read Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. As I said, the anger and wrath of God really stems from what we discussed last week. And we need to make some distinctions with the anger of God. First off, we need to acknowledge, um, and, and we tend to not think about it, right? Absence. Um, if we don't see it, you know, it's not really happening. But it's fruitful for Christians to consider the anger and wrath of God. Uh, it's, it's quite a terrifying thing to read the scriptures that discuss God pouring out his wrath. Um, Maybe it would be more terrifying, of course it would be, for us to have been in the world whenever the flood came than reading about it, or with what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, or with the plagues that happened in Egypt. Um, We need to acknowledge as Christians, and we need to long for, I think, a sense, to, to really feel a sense of terror at times when we think about and we read the scriptures that discuss God's wrath and his anger. And also in thinking, um, we're going to see in Scripture later on, especially through Christ, that Christians can rightly exhibit anger and wrath against sin. However, it's extremely difficult to do that without sinning ourselves. So with that said, we need to make some doctrinal distinctions with regards to God's anger and his wrath. With the other attributes, we usually talk about how they exist within the Trinity. So for example, God's uh, goodness He is perfectly good, each person of the Trinity, and he's perfectly blessed. And we talked about how each person of the Trinity works for the full benefit of the other one. And we talked about God's justice just this last Sunday. And we talked about how justice finds its origin within the Godhead. Justice has to do with giving what is owed. 
And each person of the Trinity works for the ultimate glory of the other because all things work for the glory of God. But with anger, we see there's something immediately different. Can we rightly say that God the Father is angry with God the Son or that God the Spirit is angry with God the Father? And the answer is no. So the safer way to discuss God's anger and his wrath is not by saying necessarily God is anger. But rather, let's say that God's anger and his wrath are outward expressions of attributes that are a part of his essential being, like his justice, his holiness, and his righteousness. This is how we can reconcile the anger and wrath of God. This is how we can look at an action, for example, Christ's death on the cross, and see God's anger and wrath poured out, but at the same exact time, see his love and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his justice being poured out as well. So the first distinction we need to make is when we talk about God's anger and his wrath, we have to maintain the unity with his other attributes. And what do I mean by that? Well, two of the other attributes we've covered, I can't remember if it was me or Robert or Adam, one of us, is God's immutability, right? God does not change. That's one of our great hopes as Christians is when God says he is something, when he promises to do something, he's not going to change his mind. And the other one that we need to try to maintain unity with when we discuss God's anger and his wrath is his impassibility. And if you don't remember, the impassibility basically, simply put, is God does not suffer passions, right? There's nothing we can do to make God change who he is or his current state. He is all of those attributes all the time, and he will always be those things. So how can we explain that? You might think in the question, well, Grant, how can you tell me God doesn't have passions and emotions? But we just read a bunch of verses that said that God's anger was going to burn. And that's actually a good segue to the next, next lesson I'll cover, so you're not going to get much on it today, but it's the use of anthropomorphic language. And that's a big word for saying when we read the scriptures that discuss God being, maybe he seems like he's not angry in one moment, and in the very next moment he's angry, and then maybe he's cooled off. This is scripture using anthropomorphic language because we are human beings and we've acknowledged with all the attributes that our minds are finite and God is infinite. And so this is how God has decided in his word to convey himself to us so that we can kind of uh, wrap our minds around it. So it's using language that human beings can understand. And the solution is when we talk about God's anger and wrath, and this goes back to the first distinction we're trying to make, anger and wrath are always expressed and directed towards sin. There is no sin within the Trinity. There is no sin in any individual person of the Godhead, and there is no anger and wrath. But since the fall and for eternity, God's anger and wrath is constantly and continually against all unrighteousness. That's the first distinction. It's not essential to God. It is an outward expression of his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. The second distinction that we need to make, and this one's not very popular in mainstream Christianity, and that's God's wrath towards wickedness. If you'd like to flip with me to the book of Nahum, I definitely marked this one before because I don't turn there a lot, but it's after Micah and before, right before Zechariah, or sorry, Zephaniah, after the book of Psalms, so it's, it's kind of in the Minor Prophets. And just Nahum chapter 1. You can probably, if you're familiar with scripture, you can probably think back through all the events that happened in the Old Testament where we had great displays of God's temporary wrath 
and anger being poured out upon people. Sometimes his own people as punishment for their hardness of hearts, and sometimes people who are completely pagan. And so um, I want to split this, this distinction up. When we talk about God's wrath and anger towards the wicked, specifically we're talking about those who don't have faith in Christ. Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. You don't have to look far in the Old Testament. And we've already mentioned a couple of the examples of where God's wrath and anger is seen against unrighteousness. Again, think back to some of the most popular stories in Scripture. The plagues being poured out upon the Egyptians. Sodom and Gomorrah. The flood that covered the entire world. But there's another type of God's wrath that is more final. Uh, I'm going to actually give a quote from, from Mark Jones's book. From page 195. This is Mark Jones quoting Herman Bovink. As Bovink attests, this wrath is terrible, inspires dread, brings pain, punishment, and destruction. Moreover, God's wrathful judgment will only reveal itself in all its power in the future and the day of wrath. And then that ends bobbing, but Mark Jones continues with this sentence. He says, the fact of hell is a place of eternal punishment reveals the anger of God. So the distinction I'd like us to understand with God's wrath towards the wicked, sin that is against an infinite and eternal God warrants and is owed eternal and infinite punishment. So we see the necessity of hell. There are Christians out there that do not like to acknowledge an eternal everlasting punishment. But we cannot. If you, but if you understand the attribute of God's justice, and that He's infinite, and that He's eternal, this is the reason why we have a place for eternal and everlasting punishment. And further, if that's not convincing enough for you, we will look at a few scriptures that discuss God's everlasting destruction of the wicked. So the eternal punishment, hell, is the eternal outpouring of God's anger. A little proof text for that will be in uh, it can be found in 2 Thessalonians uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want but it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 an extremely long run on sentence uh, but I'm just going to have to pick from and start at verse 6 I think so 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 through 9 
since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with an everlasting. It doesn't say with a, with a ten-minute you know, roast and then it's done. It says, These shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. So the first distinction we made is that God's anger and His wrath is better and more safely understood as an outward expression of His justice and His righteousness and His holiness. And the second distinction we make is we have large amounts of evidence, a high number of verses throughout Scripture that discuss God's anger and His wrath against all wickedness, all unrighteousness, and sin. There is no, there's not a single act of wickedness, there's not a single sin that is going to go unpunished. And in fact, sin, and we've seen in the Scriptures, a single sin is deserving and is owing of an eternal, infinite punishment. And that we know and we confess that that is hell. The third distinction, and here's a question. Can God's anger be upon the believer? Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> my, my even simpler answer was kinda. <laughs> kinda, sorta, yeah. Uh, so Mark Jones qualifies it as well. But the reality is we have evidence in Scripture um, that, that we can still receive punishment here on earth for our disobedience. God still punishes us. God still can be displeased with the way we behave, um, with the things that we do. And that's actually a comfort because that also means that God can be pleased with some of the things that we do as Christians. In our individual walks, in our families, um, as we serve our churches, how we work, these are things that can actually be pleasing to God, you know, through Christ working in us. But the flip side of that is he can also be displeased with us. But it has to be qualified. Obviously, a part of our confession is we know that on the cross, what was satisfied on our behalf? What was one of the things that was completely satisfied? Punishment for our sin. Right. The wrath and anger of God for, that was bent towards the elect because of all of our sins was completely atoned for. So how then can it be that God still punishes Christians in Scripture for their disobedience? I'd like to point us to our own confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith. We actually looked at this last week. I can get into my phone here. And we looked at this same chapter on justification to give a reading on how God is uh, eternally concerned with justice. In the same chapter, Westminster uh, Confession, chapter 11, Roman numeral 5, we read this. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. 
So I think a more accurate way to discuss God's anger or displeasure or rebukes towards the saints, towards those who have faith in Christ, is to discuss it within the phrase fatherly displeasure. And what's sweet about that, even for the Christians, while being terrified at this terrifying at the same time, while causing anguish even sometimes, is that it's meant, obviously, for God's glory. The Scripture actually tells us fatherly displeasure and fatherly chastening is meant to profit us. Flip with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Before we read this, just think of a quick example of God's fatherly displeasure on one whom Scripture says was a man after God's own heart. When David sinned with Bathsheba, there's all sorts of, of complicated mess going on in that event. And Bathsheba was with child, and David wanted that child to be saved. Right? He fasted. He prayed. It seems sincere, at least, the account we read in Scripture. And what did the Lord do? The baby was still taken. Punishment was still given. And later what happened? David was restored. That's one example without having to flip there. I think that's a familiar event in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. This, this passage of Scripture is, is really worth a, a nice bookmark. This is where we um, get our joy in, in still carrying out church discipline and still carrying out punishment even for our children as parents. Um, and also, this is our hope whenever the Lord chastises us. Because if he didn't, that would be a much scarier position. But let's let the scripture speak for itself. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, and I'm going to go through 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, and this is very important, Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This verse is sweet to the Christian because it acknowledges that God is not someone who just um, gets some great pleasure in just dealing out punishment even to his sons and daughters. But he does it because, it, one, it, it brings him glory, but he also does it because it benefits us spiritually. We as parents don't always like to deal out discipline to the children. In the moment of it, it can be quite frustrating. It can be sad. But we do it because of this same concept. 
because we know in the long run it benefits their spiritual condition. The same way within a church, when the officers of a church have to deal with sin in the church, it is never fun. Ministry can be messy, but they do it out of a love for the sheep. We discipline our children because we love them. And what's incredible about this is all this is modeled and reflected on God's disposition towards us as his children. He does it because he loves us. He does it because it profits us, even though it can be painful at times. It's important to be reminded of this scripture as well because it gives us a reason to be obedient. It helps us to remember warnings in scripture, not to take for granted the grace that has been extended to us and the forgiveness of Christ, right? Because there are still commands we have to be obedient to. So, that was a lot of information, but we really just I really just want to get across three distinctions. Number one, anger and wrath, not part of God's essence. Better understood as an outward expression of his justice towards sin. And number two, because of God's justice and righteousness, we can understand why there is a hell. Why God can pour out anger and wrath and vengeance upon wickedness because it goes against his character. And he has an infinite and eternal character. And number three, we as Christians can still expect to be punished and to fall into fatherly displeasure when we are disobedient. So let's look at the God-man. Let's look at Christ for a moment. Is there anything unique about God the Son that would need qualifying from God the Father? And in studying this and, and looking at how Mark Jones handled it, I think there are at least two things we need to make mention of. Did Jesus, can you think of any examples maybe? Did Jesus, so we said God was impassable, right? He doesn't experience emotions like we experience emotions and passions. But does Jesus, who has humanity, does he experience emotions? And if so, what are some that you may think he, that he does express? He will. One of them, or the shortest. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we know from other scriptures, so you think about when Jesus was tempted for those 40 days, and, and scripture tells us after that time was over, what? He was hungry. Um, there's, there's another example in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, if you want to flip there. I think I've got that written down right. Yeah. So, so Jesus, this, is on, this verse is uh, described as a Sabbath day. And Jesus is being questioned on is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Something's it's actually not Mark chapter five. I wrote that down wrong. Thank you, Adam. And when he, this is Jesus, and when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Jesus also demonstrates the twofold anger that we saw in God the Father. Jesus many times openly rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees as being honestly enemies of the kingdom. But Jesus also rebuked his own followers. Again, highlighting this fatherly displeasure. 
One example, if, and you remember this, when the children tried to come to Christ and the disciples were trying to keep them back, Jesus rebuked them. If you would like another example, Luke chapter 9, verse 56. The disciples, thinking that they're making a pious claim and being infuriated uh, because they were re- the people who they were speaking to were rejecting Christ as Savior, they make this bold statement. Luke chapter 9, verse 56. I'm going to back up to verse 53. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 53. But they did not receive him, that's that's the people um, in this village, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And so you see how hard it is for us to rightly express God's wrath and God's anger. The disciples definitely messed it up here. But he, that is Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. What do we learn from that? What do we learn from the fact that Jesus and his humanity experienced emotions? Well, we learn that us as Christians, if we are in tune with what is pleasing to God and what is uh, displeasing to Him, that we should have very similar responses. We should have similar responses to sin, primarily in our own lives, but also we should be concerned about the sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives. Is it creeping in? Is it hardening their heart? Is it hardening our heart? Uh, And there is a right way to rebuke people. There is a right and loving way to allow sin to anger you to the point where you want the person to repent. But it's tricky. While we're still on the subject of Christ, I want us to also make a distinction um, with his death. We all know what Christ accomplished on the cross, right? We said it earlier. He satisfied the wrath, the curse, and the anger of God for the sins of all the elect. But I think it's worth revisiting if we understand the fact that Christ was in perfect harmony with the Father. Christ knew God's justice and his righteousness and his holiness better than any other man that has ever walked the face of the planet and that ever will. Christ knew God's anger and wrath in a way that no other man will ever know. And yet, he still willingly went to the cross. He still willingly went to the cross and took that cup of God's wrath poured out on him when he said it was finished. And if you think that that was easy, that that didn't weigh on him, because at times, right, we're guilty of forgetting the anger and wrath of God and walking around like everything's perfect, like we're deserving of so much good and we don't deserve any bad. But even Christ himself had a hesitancy about him and his humanity. Luke chapter 22 it's Luke's account of, the, of, of Jesus in the garden prior to him being handed over. Luke 22, verse 41 through 44 says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise up and pray, lest you enter temptation. What we see on the cross is really the clearest picture that we have as Christians in time and space of both the outpouring of God's holy and righteous wrath and His love. Christ willingly did that to save the ones that God the Father gave Him. So some applications that we can try and draw from from this. I was able to come up, or limit it, I guess, to three. I think I'm doing okay on time. And maybe somebody can give a good guess to this. It's a short answer. The first application uh, that, that really came to mind for me is what is our appropriate response? When we understand God's anger, when we understand His wrath, when we see that demonstrated in Christ, when we see that demonstration on the cross, when we see what great lengths God went to through to punish sin and wickedness all throughout Scripture, what is the Christian's appropriate response? It's a word we really don't talk about a lot. It might even be coming up in one of your sermons. It's fear. Is it appropriate for the Christian to fear the Lord? I sure hope so. <laughs> we have plenty of scriptures that encourage us to fear God. Not just because it's owing to Him, and it is, but because it actually helps us. It helps us stay away from giving in to temptation. Genesis chapter 3 verse 10 is the first account that we have of disobedience. It's the first account that we have of sin and wickedness before God. And it's the first account we have of man's response to that. There's plenty of negative things that we can say about how Adam acted and interacted with his wife in the fall. But there's something I think we can learn from Adam, even in his direct response to the Lord after God is looking for him. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam's actions were entirely wrong when he disobeyed the Lord. But Adam's response here was entirely right. It is perfectly appropriate for us as Christians to approach our Heavenly Father with a fatherly fear. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, uh, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, is an entire book written that really gives, uh, tries to give good understanding, practical wisdom, but when, when, even when our family was reading through it, even when we were on Proverbs chapter 20, we always went back to this one verse because it was, it's foundational to understanding the book of Proverbs. And it's in the very first chapter. It's Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. And the end of that verse it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So is it an appropriate response for us as Christians who are reading about verses and, and studying how God's justice is outwardly expressed and seeing accounts of his anger and his wrath and even his fatherly displeasure towards Christians. Fear is the appropriate response. 
even in the New Testament, the apostles encourage us to approach the Lord, to live our faith with this type of godly, fatherly fear. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 19 through 21. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. This is speaking to the Gentiles, right? They've been grafted in to the covenant people of God. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Are, is there other English translations that y'all have that use a different word there? Or is it still fear at that section? Yes, he has fear. Okay, great. And verse 21 says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail. Severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. One of the tactics that the apostles used to encourage the saints to persevere in their faith, to not give in to the temptation of unbelief, is to fear the Lord. Is to fear the Lord. So the first application is, have we lost a sense of our fear? Are we lackluster about our faith, about our approach? Are we soft in it? Is Christianity serious to us? Is the worship of God serious to us? Is raising our families in the Lord serious to us? Is trying to let our actions and the way we spend money, what we do, how we spend our time, letting those things be impacted by Scripture, is that important to us? If it's not, that's an evidence that we lack this fear. We lack this fear that the apostle said is key to fighting the temptation of unbelief, of faithlessness. That's the first application. It was kind of meaty. The second one is this. How can an understanding of God's wrath and anger impact our prayers? We pray for God to bless us a lot. We pray for God's mercy. We pray for healing. And all these things are rightly prayed for. Is it appropriate for the Christian to ever pray for God's anger and his wrath to be poured out? Psalm 69 is one example, among many. Listen to David's prayer towards those who are persecuting him. Psalm 69, verse 24 through 28. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. I have yet to reach a level in my prayer life where I'm <laughs> comfortable praying that as confidently as David seems to. But we need to understand that when we, truly when we truly have a glimpse of God's righteousness and His justice, when we see sin, when we see unrighteousness, when we see evil in the world, something should stir in us. 
And just like when we see someone who is being um, troubled by a sickness or some type of calamity or persecution and it stirs us to pray for the Lord to provide for them, to nourish them, to care for them, equally when we see sin and evil and wickedness in the world, it should move and stir us to pray for God's wrath and His anger to be carried out. Now, that takes spiritual maturity. You know, Harper prayed one, one time in our family prayer. She said, Lord, help the people that don't read the Bible to go to hell. <laughs> I don't think I'd take it that far. We had a conversation about that. But on the flip side, the opposite side is not to always avoid that. Sometimes that, not that specific prayer. We had to, we had to work on some stuff there. But sometimes praying for the Lord to punish, even to bring fatherly displeasure on our brothers and sisters in Christ, that if they might come back, that they might repent, is an entirely appropriate prayer at times. Lastly, and I think most appropriate, is we have a tendency to be light on sin in our own lives. And if we're responsible for other people in the lives of our children, for example, I think elders probably have the temptation of dealing lightly with sin as it occurs in the church, because it's always messy when you deal with it, even when you deal with it in your own heart. But we need to learn from the example of Christ. He dealt with sin and unrighteousness head on, no matter his environment. That's the standard. We need to pray and ask the Lord to help us to take sin seriously. Dealing with it here first. Dealing with it with those who we're responsible for, our children. And so, elders, church discipline is a good thing, you know. The Lord disciplines us and he calls it a good thing. He calls it evidence that he loves us. It's a scary place to be when the Lord does not discipline us. And it's scary to have parents who don't discipline their children. And it's scary to have elders that will refuse to discipline the sheep. So let us bear in mind with this last application that we should take sin seriously. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are grateful to you. And we call you Father. And there is so much... There is so much in that one word that we are expressing, Lord, that we fear you as a, fa- as a child fears godly parents. We know you love us, Lord. We know you are merciful. We know you are gracious. We acknowledge what you accomplished through your Son, which you've applied to us by your Spirit. But, Lord, we also know that you are a great and mighty and righteous God. And in Hebrews, oh Lord, when it tells us that we can now approach your throne boldly, It is not because of our own merit. It is because of what Christ has accomplished. Bring us fatherly displeasure, O Lord, if we have sin in our lives. Do not let our hearts be hardened. Do not let us become numb to sin in our our own lives, in our families' lives, or in our church, Lord. Help us this day to consider, as we enter into our formal time of worship, where sin may have taken root, and instead of responding, instead of responding in fear, O oh Lord, we've just become hardened. We've just become numb. Soften our hearts, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.